0: Chapter 6 of Fairlands of the South Seas. Rotario. Chance began to move of set purpose in Pepetee on the day I was to sail with the 110-ton schooner Caleb WINSHIP for the cloud of islands. I was on my way to the waterfront and having plenty of time walked leisurely thinking of the long journey so nearly at hand of the strange and lonely islands I was to see and wondering, as an Anglo-Saxon must, when presented with a piece of good fortune, what I had done to merit it. Oro, the cabin-boy of the windship, was following with my luggage. He kept at some distance a mark of respect, as I thought, until I saw him sublet his contract to a smaller boy. Then he retired to spend the unearned increment in watermelon and a variety of cakes sold at the Chinese stalls along the street not wanting him to think that i begrudged him his last little fling on shore i became interested of a sudden in the contents of a shop-window and there i saw a box full of marbles in a moment oral was forgotten papa T faded from view and the warm air fragrant with the odors of vanilla and roasting coffee became more bracing there was a tang in it like that of early april in iowa for example, at the beginning of the marble-playing season. Fifteen years dropped lightly from my shoulders, and I was back at the old rendezvous in the imagination, almost as really as I had ever been in the flesh. The lumberyard of S. M. Brown and Son lay on the right-hand, and the Rock Island Railroad tracks on the left. Between, on a stretch of smooth cinder right-of-way, a dozen games were in full swing." there were cries of picks and vents bunchers sneakers knucks down the sharp crack of expert shots the crunch of cinders under bare and yet tender feet meadow larks were singing in a nearby pasture and from afar i heard the deep whistle of the rocky mountain limited as it came down the mitchfield grade i bought the marbles the whole box of them they cost fifty francs about four dollars american as exchange was then but i considered the investment a good one i knew that no matter where i might be to lift the lid of my box was to make an immediate and inexpensive journey back to one of the pleasantest periods of my boyhood. Oral was awaiting me at the quay and carried my small sea-chest on board with an air of spurious fatigue i gave him my purchase and told him to stow it away for me in the cabin which he did with such care that i did not find it again until we were within view of rutario the caleb s winship was homeward bound then from Tano where we had left Crichton, the english planter rutario lying on our course it was decided to put in there in the hope that we might be able to replace our lost deck cargo of copra washed overboard in a squall a few days previously Neither Findlay's South Pacific directory nor the British Admiral's sailing directions had much to say about the atoll. Both agreed that the lagoon is nine miles long by five broad, and that on June twenty-ninth, eighteen 1887, the French surveying vessel St. Etienne found the tide running through a narrow pass at two knots per hour. The flood is swift as the ebb. It was further stated that in 1889 Her Majesty's ship prince edward anchored in eight fathoms three hundred yards from shore in front of the village which is situated on the most westerly island and from that a few pigs and chickens were purchased at a nominal price from the inhabitants with this information i had to be content in so far as my reading was concerned there was nothing of a later date in either volume and the impression i had was that the atoll having been charted and briefly described, had remained unvisited, almost forgotten, for a period of thirty-one years. This, of course, was not the case. Tinned beef and kerosene oil had followed the flag there as elsewhere in the world. Religion, in fact, had preceded it, leaving a broad wake of Bibles and Black Mother Hubbards still in evidence among the older generation. But skippers of small trading schooners are rarely correspondents of the hydrographic associations and the reports from the field of itinerant missionaries are buried in the dusty files of the religious journals so that Rotario is as little known to the world at large as it has always been findley's general remarks about it were confined to a single sentence a lonely atoll numbering in a population of between seventy-five and one hundred inhabitants it certainly looked lonely enough on the chart far out on the westerly fringe of the archipelago more than six hundred miles from the nearest steamship route and that one infrequently traveled i sought further information from Tino Atino, the supercargo a three-quarters american despite his tahitian name he had been trading in the low islands for twenty years and during that time had created a voluminous literature with reference to their inhabitants but it was all of an occupational nature and confined to the ledgers of the inter-island trading company i found him at his usual task in the cabin where he gave me some specimen compositions for criticism We should look them over he said these copra bugs drive a man wild they get in your eyes in your liquor in your mouth lord what a life the cabin was filled with unsacked copra to the level of the upper tier of bunks one had to crawl on hands and knees. The copra bugs were something of a nuisance, and the smell and heat oppressive. I had traveled on more comfortable vessels with tennis courts on the boat decks and Roman swing baths below, but they didn't touch at Rotario. I went through his accounts, verifying long lists of items such as To Territutu, DR one dozen beacon lanterns at 480 francs. Francs 480 to uehti pence dr twelve sacks lily-dust flour at three hundred francs francs thirty six hundred to lo hong dr one gross night king flash lamps at thirty six hundred francs francs thirty six hundred the work of checking up finished we went out for a breath of air the atoll lay abeam and still far distant a faint bluish haze lifted a bare eighth of an inch above the circle of the horizon Behind us, rain fell in a straight wall of water from a single black cloud, which cast a deep shadow over the path we had come. Elsewhere, the sky was clear, and the sea, the incredible blue of the tropics. Tino broke a long silence. Look here, he said. What is it that interests you in these islands? I have never known anyone to visit them for pleasure before. Is it the women, or what? Under pressure I admitted that nature seemed to have spent her best effort among the Pomotians in fashioning the men. "'You're right,' said Tino. "'The women are healthy enough, of course, but they don't set your heart beating a hundred to a minute. They have fine hands and white teeth, and you won't find such black hair in all the world as you'll find in these atolls. But that's the size of it. You can't praise them any further for looks. Maybe you haven't noticed their ears.' because they always cover them up with their hair but they're large and their feet and ankles tough as sole leather and all scarred over with coral cuts that is well enough for the men but with the women it's different makes you lose your enthusiasm don't it i had seen a good many striking exceptions in our wanderings but i agreed in the main what he said was true well if it ain't the women what else is there to be interested in not the island themselves lord when you've seen one you've seen on the lot living on one of them is like living aboard ship not room to stretch your legs they're solid enough and they don't sink but in a hurricane i'd a heap rather take my chances out to sea with the windship than to be lashed to the stoutest coconut tree in the whole group now you take Rotario. it was washed over seventeen years ago and all but twenty of the people killed they are back to seventy-five now, but wait till the next bad blow down the way. They'll drown like rats, just as they did before. "'Well, we don't have to stop long,' he added, grouchily. "'I'll take what copra they have and get out. It's a godforsaken hole. They only make about twenty-five tons a year. The island could produce three times that amount under decent management. They're a lazy, independent lot,' added Ratero. "'You can't get them to stir themselves.' I asked him what they had to gain by stirring themselves. "'Gain?' he said. "'They have everything to gain. There are two frame houses on the place. The rest of them are miserable little shelters of coconut thatch. I haven't sold them enough corrugated iron in ten years to cover this cockpit. You remember Takura and Nahu and Fakumia? Well, there's my idea of islands. Nice European furniture, iron beds, center tables, phonographs, bicycles.' A further catalogue of the comforts and conveniences of civilization which the inhabitants of Ritaro might have and didn't, convinced me that this was the atoll I had been looking for, and I regretted that our stay here was to be so brief. I did not begrudge the inhabitants of richer atolls their phonographs and bicycles. They got an incredible amount of amusement out of them. Listened with delight to the strange music and spent entire evenings taking turns with the bicycles, riding them back and forth from the lagoon beach to the ocean shore. But the frame houses were blots on the landscape, crude, barn-like structures, most of them which offended the eye like factory chimneys in a green valley. Ruterio had none of these things, and having no interest in it from the commercial point of view, I awaited impatiently our arrival there. At ten o'clock we were three miles to windward of the village island, it lay at the narrower end of the lagoon, the inner shoreline curving around a broad indentation where the village was. The land narrowed in one direction to a ledge of reef. At the further end, there was a small motu, not more than three hundred yards in length by one hundred broad, separated from the main island by a strip of shallow water. Seen from aloft, the two islands resembled roughly in outline an old-fashioned high-pooped vessel, with a small boat in tow. I could see the whole of the toll from the mainmast cross-trees, the lagoon shimmering into green over the shoals, darkening to an intense blue over unlit valleys of ocean floor, a solitude of sunlit water, placid as a lake buried in the depths of inaccessible mountains. I followed the shoreline with my glasses. Distant islands, ledges of barren reef, leaped forward with an effect of magic as though our atom of a vessel the only sail which relieved the emptiness of the sea had been swept in an instant to within a few yards of the surf great combers green and ominous looking in the sunlight broke at one rapidly advancing point toppled and fell in segments filling the inner shadows with a smother of foam beyond it lay the broad fringe of white deserted beach the narrow forest of shrubs and palm the empty lagoon, a border of misty islands on the further side. I had seen the same sort of a picture twenty times before, always with the same keen sense of its desolate beauty, its allurement, its romantic loveliness. Tino had said, When you've seen one, you've seen them all. And an old skipper once told me that the atolls are as much alike as the reef points on that sail. It is true. They are as monotonous as the sea itself, and as fresh with varying interest. The village was hidden among the trees, but I saw the French flag flying near a break in the reef, which marked the landing-place for small boats. Further back a little knot of people were gathered, some of them sitting in the full glare of the sun, others in the deep shade, leaning against the trees in attitudes of dreamy meditation. Three girls were combing their hair, talking and laughing in an animated way they were dressed in all their european finery gowns of flowered muslin pulled up around their bare legs to prevent sauliers a matronly woman in a red wrapper had thrown the upper covering aside and sat naked to the waist nursing a baby i put down my glasses feeling rather ashamed of my scrutiny as though i had been peeping through a window at some intimate domestic scene the island leaped into the distance the broad circle of foam and jagged reef narrowed to a thread of white and the Caleb s windship prepped landward again under a light breeze an atom of a ship on a vast and empty sea eight bells struck a tinkling sound dead and scarcely audible in the wide air i heard tino's voice as though coming from an immense distance hello up there carry khan's ready i said all right i'm coming and was surprised at the loudness of my own shout but I waited for a moment to indulge myself in a last reflection. It is thirty-one years since the Prince Edward put in here. excepting a few traders and missionaries, there isn't probably one man in one hundred thousand who has ever heard of this atoll. Not one in a million who has ever seen it, or ever will see it. What a piece of luck for me! Then I saw Oro at the galley door with a huge platter of boiled beef and sweet potatoes the sight of it reminded me that i was very hungry as i climbed down to the deck i was conscious of the fact that a healthy appetite and a good digestion were a piece of luck too and that as long as one could hold it the lure of islands would remain and one's love of living burn with a clear flame jack the monkey seemed to divine my thought to agree with it as oral the food bearer passed him he reached down from his perch in the rigging, seized the largest sweet potato on the platter, and clambered out of reach. Assured of his safety, he fell to greedily looking out, wistfully toward the island. The pass was at the further end of the lagoon, and in order to save time in getting the work ashore under way, the supercargo and I, with three of the sailors, put off in the whaleboat to land on the ocean side of the village. Half a dozen men rushed into the surf seized and held the boat as the backwash poured down the stern incline at the edge of the reef among them was the chief a man of huge frame six foot two or three in height like the others who assisted at the landing he was clad only in a peru but he lost none of his dignity through his nakedness he was fifty-five years old as i afterward learned and as he stood bidding us welcome i thought of the strange appearance certain of the chief men in america or france or england would make under similar circumstances deprived of the kindly concealment of clothing what a revelation it would be of skinniness or pudginess what an exhibition of scrawny necks fat stomachs flat chests flabby arms to be strictly accurate i had seen some fat stomachs among elderly pomoyerans but they were exceptions and always remarkable for that reason and those who carried them had sturdy legs they did not give one the uneasy feeling common at home, at the sight of the great paunches of sedentary men toppling unsteadily along a strip of crimson carpet from curb to curb doorway. Wherever one goes in Polynesia, one is reminded, by contrast, of the cost physically to men of our own race, of our sheltered way of living. There on every hand are men well past middle life with compact symmetrical bodies and the natural grace of healthy children one sees them carrying immense burdens without exertion swimming in the open sea for an hour or two at a time while spearing fish loafing ashore with no greater apparent effort for yet longer periods sometimes when they have it they eat enormous quantities of food at one sitting and at others under necessity as sparingly as so many deceptics it would be impossible to formulate from their example any rules for rational living in more civilized communities the daily quest for food under primitive conditions keeps them alert and sound of body so that whether they work or loaf feast or fast they seem always to require health by it there had been no boats at retario in five months and the crowd on the beach was unfeigningly glad to see us the arrival of a schooner at that remote island was an event of great importance. The sight of new faces lighted their own with pleasure, which warmed the heart toward them at once. We had brought ashore a consignment of goods for Moi Ling, the Chinese storekeeper, and, when the handshaking was over, they gathered around it as eagerly as a group of American children at a Christmas tree. Even the village constable seemed unconscious of any need for a show of dignity or authority the only badge of his office was a cigarette-card picture of president poncartier fastened with a safety pin to his old felt hat he neglected his duties as a keeper of order and was one of the most excited of moi ling's helpers with the cargo he kept patting him affectionately on the back saying motoy motoy which in that situation may be as freely translated as you know me mo ling the old Chinaman smiled the pleasant non-committal smile of his countrymen the world over. Tino's was the only sour face on the beach. He moved through the crowd, giving orders, grumbling and growling half to himself and half to me. I told you they were a lazy lot, he said. They've seen us making in for three hours, and what have they been doing? loafing on the beach, waiting for us instead of getting their coper together. Moiling is the only one in the village who is ready to do business. Five tons, all sacked for weighing. He's worth a dozen kanakas. Well, I'll set him to work in quick time now. You watch me. I'm going to be loaded and out of here by six o'clock. But Chance, using me as an innocent accomplice, ordered it otherwise. It was Sir Thomas Brown who said, Those who hold that all things are governed by fortune had not erred had they not persisted there he may be right although i don't remember now where his own non-persistence lay but there are some things some events which chance of fortune whatever one wishes to call it governs from the outset with an amazing show of omnipotence tracing them back one becomes almost convinced of a fixed intent a far-sighted unwavering determination in its apparently haphazard functioning it is clear to me now that because i had been fond of playing marbles as a boy i was to be marooned fifteen years later on a fragment of land six thousand miles from the lumber yard of s m brown and son tino had no more to do with that result than i did he merely lost his temper because chance disorganized his plans for an early departure tried to quench his anger in rum and because more furious still because he was drunk, then off he went in the Caleb S windship. Leaving me stranded ashore, I can hear his parting salutation which he roared at me through a megaphone across the starlit lagoon. You can stay, but this is anticipating. The story moves in a more leisurely fashion. As I have said, my box of marbles came to light again only a few hours before we reached Ruterio i took them ashore with me thinking they might amuse the children they had a good knowledge of the technique of shooting acquired in a two-handed game common among the atolls which is played with bits of polished coral but theirs had always seemed to me a tame pastime lacking the interest of stakes to be won or lost i instructed them in the simple rules of bull-ring and tom's dead which they quickly mastered then i divided the marbles equally among them and gave them to understand that the winner held his gains although marbles like trade goods might be bartered for i emphasized that feature of the game because of a recollection remaining from my own marble playing days of the contempt in which boys were held who refused to hazard their marbles in a test of skill they refused to play for keeps and the rest of us had nothing to do with them the youngsters of rottario were not of that stamp. They took their losses in good part. When I saw that, I left them to themselves, and went for a walk through the village. I knew, at least—I thought I did—that our stay was to be brief, and I wanted to make the most of it. I followed the street bordering the lagoon, past the freshly thatched houses, with their entryways wide to the sun and wind, and came at length to a small burying-ground which lay in an area of green shadow far from the village. There were a dozen or more graves within the enclosure, some of them neatly mounded over with broken coral and white shell, others encased in a kind of sarcophagus of native cement to keep more restless spirits from wandering abroad. Most of them were unmarked. Two or three had wooden headboards, one of which was covered with a long inscription in Chinese. Beneath this the word Repose was printed in English, as though it had some peculiar talismic significance for the Chinaman who had placed it there. It was the grave of a predecessor of Moi Ling's. I fell to thinking of him as I sat there, and all of the Chinamen I had met in the earlier days—lonely, isolated figures—most of them without family or friends, or the saving companionship of books. What was it that kept them going? what goal were they striving toward through lives which held so little of the comfort or happiness essential to the rest of humankind repose a better end than that surely the air rang with the sound of the word the garish sunlight fell piteously on the print of it to most men i believe with the best of life still before them there is something terrible infamous in the thought of the unrelieved blackness of an endless dreamless sleep. I turned from the contemplation of it. Let my thoughts wander in a mist of dreams, of half-formed fancies, which glimmered through consciousness like streaks of sunlight in a dusty attic. These vanished at length, and for a time I was as dead to thought or feeling as Moy Ling's predecessor, sleeping beside me. I was awakened by some one shaking me by the shoulder. A voice said, "'Eritipati, come down to the boat,' and a dark figure ran on before, turning from time to time to urge me to greater speed. It was almost night, although there was still light enough to see by. I remembered that Tino had told me to be at the copra sheds at five. The tide would serve for getting through the pass until eight. But I hurried nevertheless, feeling that something unusual had happened. Rounding a point of land which cut off the view from the village and inner lagoon, I saw the schooner, about three hundred yards offshore, slim and black, against a streak of orange cloud, to the northward. She was moving slowly out, under power. The whale-boat was being hoisted over the side, and at the wheel I saw the familiar silhouette of the supercargo. I shouted, "'Hi, Tino, wait a minute! You're not going to leave me behind, are you?' A moment of silence followed. Then came the answer— with the odd deliberation of utterance which I knew meant Tahiti rum. You can stay there and play marbles till hell freezes over. I'm through with you. What had happened as nearly as I could make out afterwards was this. My box of marbles, which I had brought ashore for the amusement of the children, interested the grown-ups as well, particularly the hazard of stakes in the game I had shown them, Pomodians have a good deal of Scotch equitiveness in their make-up. They coveted these marbles. They were really worth coveting. And it was not long until play became general, a family affair, the experts in one being pitted against those in another, regardless of age or sex. Tino's threats and entreaties had been to no purpose. All work had come to an end. And the only copra which got aboard the windship was Moy Ling's five tons, carried out by the sailors themselves evidently Paulie, the chief had been one of the most enthusiastic players he was not a man to be bulldozed or browbeaten he had great dignity and force of character for all his boyish delight in simple amusements what right had tino to say that he should not play marbles on his own island he gave me to understand by means of gestures and intonation and a mixture of french and poignan that This was what the supercargo had done. At least, apparently, Tino had sent Oro on an unsuccessful search for me. He thought, I suppose, that, having been the cause of the marble-playing mania, I might be able and willing to check it. Balked there, he went on board in a fit of violent temper, and had not been seen again, although his voice was heard for an hour thereafter. Of a sudden anchor was weighed, and I was left, as he assured me, to play marbles with the inhabitants of Raccino for an impossibly long time. Most of these details I gathered afterward. At the moment I guessed just enough of the truth not to be wholly mystified. The watery sputtering of the windship's twenty-five horsepower engine grew faint. Then, with a ghostly gleam of her mainsail in the starlight, she was going. I was thinking, by Jove! I wouldn't have missed this experience for all the copra in the cloud of islands. I was glad there were still adventures of that sort to be had, in a humdrum world. It was so absurd, so fantastically unreal, as to fit nothing but reality. And the event of it was exactly what I had wanted all the time without knowing it. There was no reason why I shouldn't stop at Rotario. To be sure, I was shortly to have met my friend Nordolf at Papeete, but our rendezvous was planned to be broken. We were wandering in the South Pacific as opportunity, and inclination should direct, which, I take it, is the only way to wander. For a few moments I was so deeply occupied with my own thoughts that I was not conscious of what was taking place around me. All the village was gathered there, watching the departing schooner as she vanished a loud murmur ran through the crowd like a of wind through trees a long-drawn-out polynesian i indicative of astonishment indignation pity pomotian sympathies are large and i had been the victim of treachery they thought and was silently grieving at the prospect of a long exile they gathered around patting me on the back in their odd way expressing their condolences as best they could but i soon relieved their minds on that score then huari the constable with the cigarette card insignia pushed his way through with the first show of authority i had seen him make i been frisco he said with an odd accent on the last syllable he had made the journey once as a stoker on one of the mail-boats then he added you go to hell, me his eyes shining with pride that he could be of service as a reminder of home to an exiled American. He was about to take charge of me in view of his knowledge of English, but the chief waved him away with a gesture of authority. I was to be his guest, he said, at any rate, for the present. He began his duties as host by entertaining me at dinner, at Moy store. I was a little surprised that we did not go to his house for the meal until I remembered that the chinaman had received the only consignment of exotic food left by the windship paris ordered the feast with the discrimination of a gourmet and the generosity of a sailor on shore leave for the first time in months we had smoked herring for hors d'oeuvres followed by soup curried chicken and rice edible bird's nests flavored with crab meat from china and white bread for dessert we had small chinese pears preserved in vinegar which we ate out of the tin Woman brand pears, the label said. There was a colored picture on it of a white woman in old-fashioned puff sleeves and a long skirt, seated in a garden, while a Chinaman served her deferentially with pears out of the same kind of a container. Underneath was printed in English, These pears will be found highly stimulating. We respectively submit them to our customers. That was the first evidence I had seen of China's bid for export trade in tinned fruit. Stimulating may have been just the word, but I liked the touch of Chinese courtesy which followed it. It didn't seem out of place, even coming from a canning factory. Pauri gave all his attention to his food, and consumed an enormous quantity. My own appetite was a healthy one, but I had not his capacity of stomach. Furthermore, he ate with his fingers, while i was handicapped from the first with a two-pronged fork and a small tin spoon i believe they were the only implements of the sort on the island for the village had been searched for them before they were found it was another evidence to me of the unfrequented nature of Rotario and of its slender contact even with this world of puppety traders at most of the islands we had visited knives and forks were common although rarely used except in the presence of strangers The onlookers at the feast, about half the village—I should say, watched with interest my efforts to balance mouthfuls of rice on a two-pronged fork. I could see that they regarded it as a ridiculous proceeding. They must have thought Americans a strange folk, checking appetite and worrying digestion with such doubtful aids. Finally I decided to follow the chief's example, and set to with my fingers. They laughed at that. and looked up from his third plate of rice and chicken, to nod approval. It was a strange meal, reminding me of stories I had read as a boy, of Louis the Fifteenth dining in public at Versailles, with a room full of visitors from foreign courts looking on, whispering behind fans and lace cuffs, exchanging awestruck glances at the splendor of the service, the richness of the food, and the sight of majesty fulfilling a need common to all humankind. There was no whispering among the crowd at the Chinaman's shop, no awestruck glances other than Moy Ling's at the majesty of Paris' appetite. I felt sorry for him as he trotted back and forth from his outdoor kitchen, bringing in more food, thinking of his depleted stock, smiling with an expression of wan and worried amiability. Louis the Fifteenth would have given something, I'll venture, for that old Palmatonian chief's zest for food for the kingly weight of bone and muscle, which demanded such a store of nourishment. He pushed back his chair at length with a sign of satisfaction, and a half-caste girl of seventeen or eighteen removed the empty dishes. Palmatonian hospitality is an easy, gracious thing, imposing obligations on neither host nor guest. Dinner over, I told Pauri, that I wanted to take a walk, and he believed me. I was free at once, and I knew that he would not be worrying, meanwhile, about my entertainment. I would not be searched for presently, and pounced upon, with the dreaded, See here! I'm afraid you are not having a good time, of the uneasy host. I was introduced to no one, dragged nowhere, to see anything free from the necessity of being amused. I might do as I liked, rare and glorious privilege, and I went outside, grateful for it and for the cloak of darkness which enabled me to move about unobserved. It lifted here and there in the glow of supper-fires or streak of yellow lamplight from an open doorway. I saw family groups gathered around their meals of fish and coconuts, heard the loud intake of breath as they sucked the Mai tai sauce from their fingers. Dogs were splashing about in the shallows of the lagoon, seeking their own supper of fish. They are a strange breed, the dogs of the atolls, like no other that I have ever seen a mixture of all breeds, one would think a weird blending of good blood and bad. The peculiar environment and the strange diet have altered them so that they hardly seem dogs at all, but rather semi-amphibious animals, more at home in the sea than on land. They are gentle-mannered with their masters and with strangers, but fierce fighters among themselves. I sat down behind a clump of bushes, concealed from the light of one of the smoldering supper fires. And watched a group of rotarian dogs in their search for food. They had developed a sort of teamwork in the business. Leaped toward the shore all together with a porpoise-like curving of their bodies, and were quick as a flock of terns to see and seize their prey. Returning from my walk, I found the village street deserted, and all the people assembled back of Moi Ling's shop. He was mixing bread at a table while one of the sons of his strange family piled fresh fuel on the fire under a long brick oven. It was a great event, the bread-making. After long months of dearth, and of interest to everyone, mats were spread within the circle of the firelight. Paori was there with his wife, a mountain of a woman. Seated at his side, she was dressed in red calico wrapper, and her long black hair fell in a pool of shadow on the mat behind her. She was a fit wife for a chief in size, in energy, in the fire and spirit, living in the huge bulk of flesh. Her laughter came in a clear stream which it was a delight to hear. There was no undertone of foreboding or bitter remembrance, and the flow of it as light-hearted as a child's, heightened the merry-making mood of the others. There was a babble of talk, bursts of song, impromptu dancing to the accompaniment of an accordion, and the clapping of hands. As I looked on, I was minded of an account I had read, of the Pomontonians in which they were described as a dour people, silent, brooding, and religious. Religious some of them assuredly are, despite a good deal of evidence to the contrary, and they are often silent in the dreamy way of remote island people, whose moods are drawn from the sea, whose minds lie fallow to the peace and beauty of it. But dour and brooding is very far from the truth i took a place among them as quickly as possible for i knew by repeated experience how curious they are about strangers and first meetings were usually embarrassing without long training as a freak with a circus it would try any man's courage to sit for an hour among a group of palmatonians while he was being discussed item by item there is nothing consciously brutal or callous in the manner of it but rather an unreflecting frankness like that of children in the presence of something strange to their experience. I knew little of the language, although I caught a word here and there, which indicated the trend of the comment. It was not general, fortunately, but confined to those on either side of me. Two old grandmothers started a speculation as to whether or not I had any children, and from this a discussion rose as to which of the girls of Rotero would be best suited as a wife for me. I was growing desperate when Chance, the godfather of all wanderers, intervened again in my favor. Moyling's fire was burning brightly, and it occurred to several of the youngsters to resume their marble playing. I saw Perusi's face light with pleasure, and he was on his feet at once, with his stake in the ring. Others followed, and soon all those who had marbles were in the sport. I understood clearly, then, how helpless Tino had been. I could easily picture him rushing from group to group, furious at the thought of his interest being neglected through such childish folly. Those marbles were more desirable than his flour and canned goods, which he stood ready to exchange for Copra. The explanation of this astounding fact may have been that no one thought he would go off as he did, and to-morrow would do just as well for getting down to business. Since he had gone, there was an end of that. It was futile to worry about the lost food. Certainly it was forgotten during the great tournament which took place that evening. Moy Ling worked at his bread-making unnoticed. His fire died down to a heap of coals, but another was built, and the play went on. Paori was a splendid shot, in marble playing as in other respects, the best man of the village. But there was a slip of a girl who was even better. During the evening she accumulated nearly half of the entire marble supply, and at length these two met for a test of skill. It was a long, drawn-out game. I had never seen anything to equal the interest of both players and spectators. Not even at Brown's lumberyard, when the stakes were a boy's most precious possessions. Cornelian stone tossed. No one thought of sleep except a few of the old men and women, who dozed off at intervals with their heads between their knees. The lateness of the hour, the bizarre setting for a game so linked with memories of boyhood, combined to give me an impression of unreality. I had the feeling that the island and all the people on it might vanish at any moment, and the roar of the surf resolve itself into the rumble of street traffic in some gray city. And though it were the very city where marbles are made, for in the length and breadth of it could there be found any one who knew the use of them with either the time or the inclination to play. I might search it street by street, to the soot stained suburbs, I might go on to the green country, perhaps, visit all the old time marble playing rendezvous from one coast to the other, with no better success. And though I passed through a thousand villages of the size of Rotario, could an evening's amusement be provided in any one of them for men, women and children, at an outlay of four dollars American? The possibility would not be worth considering. People at home live too fast in these days, and they want too much. I could imagine Tino, in a sober mood, giving a grudging assent to this. But, man, he would have added, I wish they had more of their marble-making enthusiasm at Ritterio. I would put in here three times a year, and fill the windship with Copra, to within an inch of the main boom every trip moi ling had enough of it for the whole island it seemed to me his ovens were opened as the tournament came to an end and for half an hour he was kept busy passing out crisp brown loaves and jotting down the list of creditors in his account book it must have been nearly midnight the crowd began to disperse Powry joined me smiling ruefully holding out empty hands he had lost all of his marbles to a mite of a girl whom he could have put in his vest pocket had he owned one his wife teased him about it on the way home laughed heartily at his explanation and excuses they discussed the events of the day long after the other members of the household had retired to the mats on the veranda at last i heard their quiet breathing and a strip of light from the last quarter moon revealed them asleep two massive heads on the same pillow i lay awake for a much longer time thinking of one thing and another of my friend crichton at tanau the loneliest atoll in the world i should say of the windship far out to sea homeward bound with one hundred and forty tons of copra in her hold of tino with his fits of temper and his passion for trade which blinded him to so much of the beauty and the joy of life but after all i thought it is men like tino who keep wheels turning and boats traveling the seas if he were to die his loss would be felt there would be an eddy in the current of life around him. But men like Crichton or myself, we should go down in our time, and the broad stream would flow over our heads without a ripple, to show where we had been, without a bubble rising to the surface to carry with it for a moment the memory of our lives. It was not a comforting thought, and I tried to evade it, but I realized that my New England conscience was playing a part in these reflections, and was not to be soothed in any such childish manner how much copra have you ever produced or carried to market it appeared to say i admitted that the amount was negligible how do you mean to justify your presence here was the next question and before i could think of a satisfactory answer what good will come of this experience either to yourself or to anyone else that was a puzzler until i happened to think of finley's south pacific directory I remembered that his information about Ritterio was very scant. The general remarks confined, as I have already said, to a single sentence—a lonely atoll numbering a population of between seventy-five and one hundred inhabitants. As a sop to my conscience, it occurred to me that I might write to the publishers of that learned work, suggesting that, in the light of recent investigations, they add to that description, fond of playing marbles. End of chapter 6